Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. Today, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is talking with Dr. Priscilla Pope-Levison. Priscilla is an Associate Dean and Professor at the Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University, and she is the author of several books, including her most recent work, Methods of Evangelism. Priscilla has taught evangelism courses for over 20 years and has over 30 years of ministry experience as an ordained minister in the local church, a college chaplain, a frequent speaker at churches and retreats, and a seminary administrator. We are so excited to have her with us today on the Alabaster Jar. Priscilla, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to talk about your new book, Models of Evangelism. That is so, uh, so exciting. Uh, Let me read for our listeners. Well, first of all, hello, and I'll let you say hello. <laughs> Just I'm so excited. Hi, book. hi, Lynn and Serene. I'm delighted to, to be on this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, in your introduction, the very first sentence, Bathsheba Kingsley was charged in 1741 with stealing a horse and riding away on the Sabbath without her husband's consent, which she did in order to preach the gospel in neighboring towns. Okay, like that is one of the best opening lines of any book anywhere. Wow. So, I mean, I, but I have to ask, why did you write this book other than to be able to <laughs> produce such great opening sentences? Well, thank you. Uh, as you know, people pick up the first sentence of a book and often decide yay or nay. But uh, isn't that the best story? And I want to thank Catherine Breckis, who used to teach at University of Chicago, I think not too far away from you, and is now at Harvard, who has done so much on recovering women's history. And she, I read in her book, um, Strangers and Pilgrims, about Bathsheba Kingsley. And I just love it. And it's not the way that you would expect an evangelism book to start. Normally, they start with that great airplane story, right? Where they get on the plane and all they want to do is sit and hide behind a newspaper. And then they just happen to sit next to someone who they just happen to bring to Christ. And I just didn't have a great story like that. They they intimidate me, those kind of stories. Well, sure. They intimidate me because it's never happened to me. So you think what the, you know, this has never, I'm not good enough, right? So my whole point in starting it this way, not only am I an historian who loves to find women's stories in particular, but also I wanted to jar people or, you know, from the beginning. And also my whole point, I do um, many brief historical vignettes about all different kinds of evangelists is just to say right off the bat, this, there's no right way to do evangelism. Evangelists don't come in a particular size or race or gender. Um, And I just love this story because she was chastised actually by Jonathan Edwards. Um, But she believed God was calling her to preach the gospel. And how else was she going to get there except for to take her husband's horse? So (laughs) I just love the ingenuity. I love the passion that she and just just sort of her chutzpah, one would say, to do that. I'm glad you liked it. Yes. No, it it was it was great because I your book models of evangelism 
the title itself almost scared me because I thought I, I am so inadequate in this, you know, and then opening it and I, I grew up riding horses. So immediately I'm drawn to Bathsheba here. It's like, oh yeah, get on a horse, but <laughs> taking somebody else's so that uh, you can go preach. It's like the, as you say, just her um, passion for following God's uh, God's will, it's just fantastic. And you really do throughout this book. It's got about how many chapters? We've got uh, eight chapters where you just um, open up for me. You just open up the world of evangelism in in such a way that is non-threatening, informative. One thing I love about how you've structured all the chapters is you they come in four parts. Biblical foundation, theological foundation, historical foundation, and practical foundation. And boy, that was that's just so helpful. What what led you to design them that way? I found it very useful. Thank you. Uh, it came from over twenty years of teaching the intro to evangelism class. And as you know, I'm married to a biblical scholar, and so that's always been important to me. And I think. Um, even if we interpret the Bible differently, which Christians do, um, that's still the, the, this, uh, ace, our common source, in a sense. And then um, I taught theology for many years. And as I said, I love history. So um, it just felt like t- this was the way I presented it to students. Uh, we would delve into biblical foundations, and then uh, we'd look at theology, history, But every semester, I had them choose and research a model of evangelism. So there were many more than what I put in this book. I I selected a wide range and uh, ones that I felt had stood the test of time, in a sense. Um, And then I had a... um, the final assignment was for them to uh, uh, to design a year-long evangelistic strategy for their ministry context. And they had to use at least one model um, and most used two or three. And the feedback I got from students every semester was how helpful those models were because it they were kind of like a stake in the ground and you know, so much of seminary is, it's important, all of that background material. Um, but then when you get to courses where you can bring that background material to some practical um, strategies, they just kept saying to me, this is really helpful. They, they seem to be using it in their ministries. And so I, um, it's, it, you know, I've been writing mostly history, but it just seemed like this was a time for this book. Um, I do think that I have a different voice in it because I'm not presenting or promoting my own ideas. Um, I do assessment of each model, but I really wanted people to read the models. I appreciate your um, uh, words about clarity. I think it's so important. So I kind of, I kind of lead readers through so that by the time they've gotten to the end of the model, I think they really understand it. Now, whether they like it or not, or whether they, you know, put it into practice, I can't, you know, I can't uh, make that one way or the other. I don't like all the models, you know, to be honest. But um, I think it, it again, it, it strips away that evangelism has to happen in one way or it's not evangelism. And I just think that keeps people from um, engaging in what this good news is all about. 
Well, exactly. So one of your chapters is called visitation. And, <laughs> and I, I love that. I mean, you know, you can talk a little bit more about that, but, and, and I would love for you to do that, including you mentioned this woman, Emma Ray, yeah. who is a free Methodist evangelism who uh, worked in downtown Seattle and her story is absolutely inspiring. Yeah. But I think today, sometimes we wouldn't count her as an evangelist. So go ahead, tell us a little bit about this chapter and about Emma Ray. Yeah, I, I fell in love with Emma Ray. Uh, as you know, I taught at Seattle Pacific University for 15 years. And I just happened uh, to find out about Emma Ray uh, across the street at um, the Free Methodist Church. Had, they had some archives. And I, I had come across Emma's name um, in some free Methodist history, something or other. And at, um, at, at I can't remember that which, it wasn't, it was first free. Um, they had these archives and I came across uh, this picture of Emma and Emma is a black woman and she's surrounded by these uh, white older elders of the Free Methodist Church at a Snohomish tent meeting. And her whole story just intrigued me and I fell in love with her. But it, in terms of visitation, she took this to heart. She visited in the jail. She used an overturned bathtub as an altar. She and Mother, Mother Rither went into the brothels on Wednesday afternoons. And if the owners would let them, they held evangelistic services. They walked the wharves of Seattle looking for drug addicts in order to bring them back to Mother Ryther had started an orphanage um, to help them, to wean them off the drug. I mean, they just talk about hands-on ministry and it was visiting the down and out, not expecting anyone to come to their church, but going to the jail, going to the brothels, you know, going to the streets of, of downtown Seattle. Um, it just, the, her story, I actually have written um, uh, something on Emma Ray, Good Evangelist, because um, at the end of my book, I talk about five characteristics of good evangelism, and she just inhabits every one of them. It's an amazing story. Yes. Thank yeah. you for asking about her. She's, she's just one of my heart, you know, heart connections. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, and, and visitation, I think we, we might classify what she did as um, uh, good works or social justice today um, without recognizing that component of evangelism, how you've laid that out. She's a meaningful example for all of us today in, in what she's done. Um, your chapter on prophetic sounded more like what I think of evangelism, right? Okay. You know, that kind of speaking in somehow I just kind of have in my mind, evangelism is with words. And that's one of the myths, uh, one of my myths that you really do a good job of debunking. <laughs> but with your um, prophetic, uh, there's a, a wonderful, again, history. I'm a history buff too. So I, I enjoy with being a biblical scholar. Yeah, well, I love it. Yeah. And uh, so you talk about Charles Finney, a name we know well, but then you also mention uh, Antoinette Brown, um, who was at Oberlin College and uh, was the first uh, woman ordained in the United States. Um, she was, um, well, I'd love for you to tell, uh, tell her story also as we think about prophetic. Charles Finney, 
um, Antoinette Brown, and then John Perkins. Yeah. So I don't know a lot about Antoinette Brown, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I do think that it attests to um, Oberlin College at the time was a place where the gospel message had such an impact on what we would call today social justice. I mean, Finney was uh, made so many inroads in terms of women. Um, he he uh, encouraged women to pray in public, which in the 1830s and 40s was wow. Um, he encouraged mixed, mixed assemblies, and by that he meant mixed gender. Um, and so a lot of women found their voice um, under, in, under his ministry, but he also uh, was strong that if churches take what he considered to be the wrong side on human rights issues, which at the time was slavery, um, their revivals would not prosper. And so he just a really interesting link between revival, what we think of as only verbal, you know, come to Jesus tonight, and um, what churches are doing about human rights issues and linked those two. And, um, you know, he and Asa Mahan, the, the first um, president at Oberlin, really made that such such a center for women, for uh, Blacks were admitted um, in Oberlin. Women were, um, were also, it was co-educational. And so it's not surprising to me that the first woman ordained was a graduate of Oberlin. Um, I know that now Oberlin has, in a sense, lost that evangelistic strain. You know, I mean, it's so hard to keep those two together what John Perkins talks about as, and many, Richard Stearns, the, the past president of World Vision, you know, about that, about the whole gospel. Um, I remember uh, John Perkins says, I don't want to teach, uh, you know, a salvation gospel or a social gospel. I want to do both. Um, and I think that's so, um, that's certainly true in John Perkins' life. Um, just that bringing together of word and deed that makes a difference particularly for those who are living on the margins. You talk, you talk also about um, hospitality. And um, as we were talking before the, the show, uh, Serene was, was um, just expressing, you know, interest in finding a little more, but I'll let Serene ask. <laughs> sure, yeah. So uh, Priscilla, I, in my experience, I've seen hospitality be this term that we sort of align with a task. Like we set a table, we open up our home and that is the act of hospitality. But as I've served in ministry contexts, I've kind of observed hospitality as something that comes to the surface when we practice our faith. And I've really been um, just challenged and encouraged to think about what it means to, to serve a God who um, in God's essence is hospitable. You know, God has made this place for us in um, his family at the table. And I'm just wondering, as we think through that in the lens of evangelism, um, what does that look like when we're sharing our lives and sharing our faith with others to live that out um, sort of as a reflection of, of who God is more so than um, just a task? Hmm. Well, I think you said it beautifully, Serene. I'm not sure I can uh, <laughs> expound on that any better, but um, let me just put this in context. So in the last, in the conclusion of the book, 
um, I, I went back through all of the models. So, so I kind of did the horizontal view and thought about what characteristics um, or what attributes uh, are, are across the board that in a sense, um, these need to be a part of the, um, a part of the whole process if these models are gonna come alive. And so I came up with five. And the first one was hospitality. And it's something I've really, really encouraged my students to engage in because um, Jack and I and our family have walked in and out of so many churches and um, there's not a place for us, uh, you know, because we're not, we're not known to them. And I, I, um, you know, the Greek word philoxenia, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, uh, Lynn can correct me, um, is simply love, phileo, of the stranger, xenos. And um, I think, um, you know, that could consist of a meal, that could consist of what Emma Ray was doing. Um, it could consist of what John Perkins is doing. I mean, I think hospitality, um, Henry Nouwen put it so well, we think of it as a tea and cookies affair, but he talks about hospitality as a place where a stranger can become a friend. And so I think that really opens the door to, as you said, a meal. I mean, absolutely. We're, we're going to move on July 1st into an SMU dorm as faculty and residents. And we're going to, you know, food is going to be a part of everything we do there in terms of hospitality. But it could also be acts of justice. It could also be, you know, a prayer vigil. It could be, you know, um, it, it could be a, a, a demonstration for, for how, you know, adequate housing or whatever hospitality can, um, I think it's, it's providing a safe space where people feel cherished and loved and they see, as you said, this God who is hospitable in and of God's self uh, made manifest in us and in what we are doing and how we are engaging um, the stranger. That's a, that's a simple way, but it's so deep and profound, I think, hospitality. Yeah, that's beautiful, thank you. Well, and it, it, as you're talking, I'm thinking as well of um, some models or some examples of evangelism where the implicit underpinning is, I have all the truth and it's mine and I'm going to give it to you or share it with you, but there's an asymmetrical power mm -hmm. thing going on here. Yeah. And, and so there's not, there's not a space where the person who's bringing the message has a vulnerability. There's not kind of a two-way street. There's not a sense that the person themselves would, who is sharing the gospel in some way is also receiving uh, from the other. And that, so you mentioned those five qualities, the first being hospitality, but the second is forming relationships. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that. Living with integrity is the third. Bearing the Christian message, the fourth. And rooting yourself in a Christian church, the fifth. But that idea of practicing hospitality and forming relationships feels to me like you're balancing what at times, if it becomes unbalanced, seems very transactional. Mm -hmm. 
the way I love the way you um, the way you framed it, I wanted to say, but but it can be done that way. It can be done with vulnerability. It can be done, you know, with shared power, so to speak. Um, and I, I know that um, that that probably many evangelists would disagree with me, but I um, I'm thinking like of one of the most wonderful evangelists in uh, the New Testament is Philip. I mean, it's not surprising that he had four daughters who were evangelists, but you think of his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, I mean, first of all, the spirit snatches him away and lands him in a wilderness road. But the first thing he does is he asks a question, you know, and he starts where the Ethiopian eunuch was. I mean, the eunuch has the scroll of Isaiah um, draped over his knee. And, you know, Philip doesn't say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you got to start at the beginning. No, he started, it's so clear, he started from where he was. And I think um, uh, that, that maybe that, that sense of Philip, who has got to be an amazing person to have four evangelist daughters, um, and that sense of curiosity, of wonder, where is the spirit going to lead me today? You know, who am I going to have encounter and what am I going to learn from them? You know, I love that, Lynn, which you said is, but also, can I be a guide to them? You know, I mean, obviously, Philip was a guide that took the eunuch from uh, Isaiah to the, the the slaughtered lamb and all of that, so that finally, you know, and then the, the eunuch says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? I mean, in a way, and I know that's that's maybe contrived, but it's actually one of my favorite stories, you know, where or I think about uh, the hospitality of Priscilla and Aquila, you know, with Apollos, they listened to him and they listened to him closely enough that they knew that that he didn't know about the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, he knew about John's baptism. And so what they do, uh, I think the Greek word is proslambano. They took him home, probably hospitality, it's used in Acts as, as feeding, you know, they took him home. And in that context, probably around a meal, I mean, their, their home was a house church in Corinth and Rome. And, um, you know, they, they teach him more clearly. They don't stand up and, you know, Apollos, you've got it wrong. And, you know, public shaming. No, I just, so there's so many examples, even in the book of Acts where the church is growing, in leaps and bounds, where we see evangelists who are uh, winsome, who aren't power over, who are, you know, in a sense, coming as an equal to um, to help people come to Jesus. So I, I think those are two examples that we don't talk about enough um, when we talk about evangelism. Can you tell I'm married to a... a <laughs> Bible person. <laughs> Everything I know about the Bible comes from Jack. So I'll just give that shout out to Jack Levison. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Always good. Yeah. I mean, you can't go wrong with that. Not at all. Yeah. And you, you kind of touched on um, some ways in which we can do evangelism badly. As I was looking at your chapter on media, I thought, oof, uh, I think of tele-evangelism and scandal and all of that. Can you think of some times, uh, either specific examples in the church's history, or um, maybe some of your students have told you stories where evangelism has just gone terribly wrong? Yeah, I um, that's another place that I chose not to spend a lot of time. 
um, because I think that's, it has evangelism is such a negative word. In fact, you know, I heard later um, Ed Stetzer, who teaches uh, evangelism at Wheaton, uh, said in a blog about uh, when he was blogging on my book, something about putting evangelism in the title as a killer for sales. Um, and, and uh, you know, I understand that, but I tend to be, I just like to be transparent. This is what this book is about. Um, and I was also thinking about, not that it has, it will have the shelf life of Avery Dulles's models of the church, but I, I just think that it, that's what it is. It's a models of evangelism. Um, wait a minute, I lost the train of my uh, thought. Oh, bad evangelism. Yeah. Um, so the word itself is so negative that I just didn't want to spend a lot of time on it. But yeah, I mean, I grew up, I was, uh, you know, alive and adult in, in the 80s and 90s when so many televangelists uh, fell from grace. But also, I mean, you think about, I'm not going to name them by names, but some of the evangelists today who have three and four you know, $20 million, $50 million planes. And they, they, there's one who says he doesn't want to um, fly on a commercial airline because he feels he's going to be attacked by demonic power. So I need more money for another plane. I mean, it just hurts my heart. Um, I, I think the anytime money gets involved in this um, power, you mentioned that, I mean, I, I it's just tragic. Um, and, you know, but do we shy from that? Um, I'm, I'm hoping we can reclaim this ancient practice. I hope that evangel that the good news euangelion is part of our DNA. And um, I don't want to let the scandals and the, you know, the horrific things. I mean, you can go back to the conquistadores and, you know, yes, they, they made converts. But at the point of a gun or, you know, it, it just, it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of bad. <laughs> there's a lot of just awful stuff being done in the name of evangelism. And um, I, I hope we can, uh, I hope we can do things differently. And I'm glad that you didn't spend time in your book on, on the bad, because it would have been distracting from what you're trying to do, which is help people really live into this call, yeah. go and, and um, share the gospel everywhere, wherever you are, um, and just, just follow that. But I do want to ask you, what do you think of the uh, interpretation and media evangelism when then Jesus told them to cast the net uh, for fish that he was really talking about the internet? It's like, what? Well, I, I take that as job security. I will continue to have a job teaching New Testament because there are those kinds of interpretations out there. I just love that. I thought, oh my goodness. They, I mean, so convinced that Jesus knew that the World Wide Web and the internet was going to be around. I don't know. So yeah, yeah that uh, I did have some laughs. There were some things that were just way out there that I had to put in and uh, just hoping people would get a little laugh. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know what, um, as we finish up this half hour has been just so much fun and getting to, uh, just to hear about the, the evangelists who have gone before us. Um, I love your stories. I love how you've been an encouragement Wherever you are as a believer, no matter how long you've been a believer, all of us can be evangelists. I think you just make it real and possible for us rather than opaque and sort of 
shaming. I always felt like, well, I'm not doing this well, you know, and, and you really take, take that. Um, Thank you. That from us. Yeah. Uh, one of the, uh, so in your introduction, you also mentioned someone else, uh, Harriet Livermore. She sang and preached to a standing room only crowd in Congress. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, when John Quincy Adams was, um, uh, was president and uh, it just these women that travel all around to just give the, give the message. And then uh, women who have prayer groups year by year by year. You mentioned a woman who uh, was, lived in the late 1700s, uh, Sarah Osborne, yeah. and um, doing her prayer group for over 20 years, the group grew to as many as 350 people, men, women, children, and in this time, uh, enslaved uh, people who just came for nightly prayer meetings. I mean, it's it's yeah. like they traveled, they were in Congress, they were at their house. I mean, it's just women sharing, sharing the, the good news of the gospel. Thank you for bringing it to life uh, in such an accessible, I, interesting way. I just want to say that the, the courage of these women, uh, this was, you know, obviously long before they were, um, could have a seminary like Northern, um, you know, or could be ordained or, you know, I was just thinking Sarah Osborne um, ran amok with the, the pastor. I think his name was Reverend Fish because of the success of her meetings. And she wasn't even trying to do anything. She just, you know, um, but they, uh, I'm just awestruck by their courage um, because they believed that um, God had called them to open their home to a prayer group or to preach the gospel or Emma Ray's case, you know, she brought um, newly released prisoners home to her home and uh, took care of them because she believed that when they went just off on the streets, they would fall back, what she would say, call, fall back into sin again. So long before there was any rehabilitation, you know, programs or whatever, she recognized that um, they needed a job, they needed a haircut, they needed clean clothes, um, they needed food, a place to sleep. And the only thing she asked is that they went to church with her. Um, so this, uh, yeah, the women, um, we can talk another time. I'd love to talk about some of the other women. Um, they just, they uh, amaze me with their uh, courage and their um, willingness to brave any kind of danger in order to um, make the gospel known. That's wonderful. We, we stand on some broad shoulders. Yes, yes. We really do. So thank you for bringing that, uh, that to light. Your book, Models of Evangelism, it's just fantastic. I encourage our listeners uh, to get it. And thank you so much, Priscilla, for spending this thank time. Thank you. Let's do it again. Love to, love to. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. Thank you for joining us for our conversation with Dr. Priscilla Pope Levison today. We hope that this conversation has inspired you to consider how you can practically engage in evangelism. And if you'd like to learn more, be sure to check out her book, Models of Evangelism. We'll see you right back here next week for another episode.